yeah, no, I thought vegans were the worst, but really I think what was happening was my conscience was saying, get away. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't want to look at like the things that you're saying. Cause I, I don't want to have to accept that and deal with that kind of change. Welcome back to the teacher's table podcast, a podcast for anyone interested in veganism or plant-based food, whether you're vegan or not. I'm Jonathan the disposable straw through which Ticho sucks the marrow of life. Today I'll be talking to professional photographer and conservationist Rachel Rabibo. We'll discuss conservation, David Attenborough, film photography and much more. In fact, there's so much value here, you may start to feel guilty for listening so passively and then decide to subscribe, share, rate and review this podcast. But first... Val and I serve up some advice on a dinner table dilemma. John and Val. Vegan wines with John and Val. This wine smells a lot better than the wine I buy. <laughs> it well, smells really good. Well, that's the trick. You don't buy it. Get Oxfam Fairtrade <laughs> to send it to you. Or buy it from Oxfam Fairtrade. That's what they want me to say. <laughs> Well, if it isn't Val Gallardo, my pal, and uh, what can I say about Val? She once dressed up as Lisa Simpson as a Halloween costume. I think that tells you <laughs> a lot about her. Um, to you don't win friends with salads. <laughs> no, well, you do on this podcast. I mean, you do. <laughs> first things first, we're opening the wine of the day. We've gone back to red wine today. It's the Campesino Carmenere from Chile. Yeah, they say served with meat, but let's not... Let's not go there. <laughs> bottled in chili. Let's leave it at that. Bottled in chili. Uh, sent to us so kindly by Oxfam Fairtrade. Why do they keep sending us free wine? Because they want you to know that they've got all these vegan wines in their assortment. It's very tasty. I like it a lot. This one's I not... like it a lot more than the rosé we drank last week. Um, the first thing I thought when I tasted it was that it tastes like chili peppers. I don't know why, but... Yeah, I can see what you mean. It has a sort of fruity and slightly peppery quality. And of course, we're not wine experts, as no. we always say. But these are our subjective opinions. Yes. And but at least they're ours. They're ours. <laughs> you can't take them away from us. I know exactly what you're saying. And there's also some sort of... Um, it's like when you bite into the stalk of a blackberry or, or some kind of berry and there's that kind of woody mm. note to it. That's the tannins in the wine, mm -hmm. of course. I know that much. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's what it reminds me of very strongly. Tannins are bitter, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's from the skins of the yeah. of the grape. The fruitiness combined with the dryness is completely evocative of harvesting blackberries at your grandmother's house uh, or, you know, near your grandmother's house. It's delish but we're not here to talk about the wine all day we've got serious problems to discuss <laughs> bethany in wales needs our help okay i'll read out the question okay um dear john and val i'm a quiet person and i can't compete with loudmouth people in a group setting i practically live in fear of any situation where i'll be eating together with a large group of people who are not vegan like me specifically i fear the conversation getting out of control with people saying upsetting or ignorant things about animals. Like bragging about how they eat tongues and eyeballs as if it's so noble. Or regurgitating bogus anecdotes that cast veganism in a bad light. Is that is that the end? That's the end. Well, Bethany from Wales. Bethany in Wales. Um, I think we both know what you mean. Uh, I do anyway. I, I can relate to that in the past. I've had experiences like that. I think what she means by bragging about eating eyeballs and uh, mm -hmm. tongues is uh, the kind of meat eaters mentality of my kind of meat eating is better than yours because at least I eat the whole animal you know what I mean oh yeah like um okay that makes sense with the tongues and eyeballs I was wondering why yeah, that came from I think from. that's what she means yeah um she's a quiet person she can't compete so the logical conclusion is don't compete, I would say. And that she's probably saying, yeah, duh, yeah. but what if they come to me 
Um, it can be irritating, I guess, like hearing things you disagree with, like in large. Yeah, just hearing it even. Yeah, just like some nonsense that you. Um, oh, sorry, that was my always on was silent. silent. <laughs> sorry. Um, she she fears the conversation getting out of control, which. Um, I think it all depends on the friends that you hang out with as well. Like, That's true. But imagine, I mean, I've been in situations where you're invited to dinner. Lovely. You know, someone's inviting you into their friend group. Or maybe they're trying to create a community of people. Maybe they're, they don't know the people they've invited. That's possible. In which case, yeah, you do have unpredictable situations. Um, what comes to mind is try and hide in the chaos let them speak until they're tired and only if they address you directly do you get involved because otherwise you're feeding the fire. Mm -hmm. um, so just try and stay out of it. If you get dragged into it, politely disengage if you can. If you want to. If you if you want to. Sounds I mean, like she doesn't want to no, really have these conversations. No, so, some people like uh, debating. I, I, I don't. I don't like annoying questions. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't mind debating if the person was actually interested. But yeah, that's, that's, that's the whole thing. That's, that's not what she's thing. talking. Yeah. yeah, she's talking about cases where people are just like some sort of performative gesture where they just want everyone to know mm -hmm. how they see things. So that yeah. can happen. It all depends on like uh, where the comments come from. Like if it's from a good place and there the person is like genuinely curious and wants to know more about veganism. I think you can say, let's talk about it, uh, maybe not right now because we're eating, mm. uh, because that's also a thing like it's not nice to debate things like that when the person is e eating their, uh, I don't know, lasagna with meat in it or yeah. whatever. It's not likely that the meat no. eater who's, you know, is just going to put down their fork and say, well, you've convinced me. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much. I'll never eat meat again. You know, they're not there for that. It's yeah. not a real discussion. Um. But then there's also like sometimes when people are genuinely, um, they they never considered that a thing like this was possible. So they ask you like, what do you eat? I don't know if this happened to you. It happened to me many times. Mm. Um, but then I would say to them, uh, I eat what you eat, except vegan. You know, mm -hmm. there's vegan pizzas, vegan burgers, uh, yeah. if that's what they're worried about. Um, I think they just like wonder how you can because it's so, so ingrained like this um, habit. Yeah, and that can come from a genuine place of curiosity, yeah. which is great. But I think what the way Bethany talks about it here, it's clear that she is sort of she's fatigued by mm -hmm. sort of show offy people who are not really interested, in, not really no. curious types. No. They're just, just like proud types. I think. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe uh, hang out with some different people who like accept you. <laughs> yeah, but you know, or, like are more tolerant. I don't know. There is one situation that comes to mind, which is where you're not the only vegan at the dinner table, and uh, the other vegan, against the common sense, does engage in it, and then mm -hmm. you know everyone is focused on them mm -hmm. and they're, they, they're ganging up on this person and you're sitting there and they're looking at you like, help me. Yeah, then, <laughs> then you've been caught into something. The, you you, be, you uh, get dragged into yeah, it against your yeah. will. Yeah. So it's possible even if you yeah. try and be level-headed and calm and just yeah. you know, let people talk, you still might get dragged yeah. in. Yeah. Well, it's not a good idea to, um, yeah, it, during, it, during the meal, like... Sounds terrible. Like it doesn't sound like a good atmosphere, right? No, it's, like... it's. I think it's not common either. So I, I would say to Bethany and other people like Bethany, don't worry too much about this. Yeah, it might happen uh, occasionally, and you will remember it because yeah. it'll be it sound, annoying. But sounds like Christmas dinners when people are fighting over politics yeah. or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's the thing. It's it's not only veganism yeah. Yeah. where you you have this problem. It's oh yeah, any kind of political yeah. question. Yeah, even I don't know. People talking about um, your habits or your romantic partner or something, or like talking about things indirectly when you really know that they're mm -hmm. talking about you. Mm -hmm. Many, many yeah, yeah. versions of this problem. Mm. Oftentimes it's um, the food is like really linked with identity. So like people are defending something else than um, just eating meat. They're defending like... Their background, their family cooking, um, mm. 
their childhood or yeah some other things like um toxic masculinity toss- yeah i was thinking about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's 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 a mixed bag and um it's a communication problem and it can be especially challenging in a large group i think yeah so to, i think to summarize our advice is uh don't engage if you do disengage <laughs> and otherwise uh, just just try not to let it bother you too much yeah. it'll be over <laughs> soon it will be and you doesn't... can you can talk to the person who's next to you like yeah and, and, and like what about something else you know <laughs> so that's our advice and actually we got a number of comments from listeners on this question uh, we're going to read them after the interview. Maybe someone else's advice might click with you better mm-hmm. than uh, what we had to say. So stay tuned for that. My guest today is calling from her home base in Paris, but on any other day, she might just as well be calling from London or New York. As a professional photographer, she's highly sought after in the worlds of fashion, fitness, lifestyle and travel. But as a passionate environmentalist and conservationist, the world that's closest to her heart is the one we all share. In fact, separate from her professional Instagram profile, she has a hugely popular account dedicated to her wildlife photography, where she also shares conservation and climate facts. Rachel Rabibo, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I know you must live a busy life, but I'm grateful for your time. Uh, as a professional photographer traveling the globe, some listeners might wonder if this is compatible with environmentalism do you do anything to curb or offset your carbon emissions yeah so i think that that's a very valid question i would say travel has always been a huge part of my life and a huge part of my career so it's not something that i ever sort of envisioned removing from my work or from my life um personally i'm vegan as you know I live in a small apartment that really doesn't consume a lot of energy. I don't own a car. Um, I usually walk or ride a bicycle to get around in the city. I sometimes take public transportation. I don't have air conditioning. Um, And more importantly, I consciously chose to not have children, Mm. which, you know, it doesn't erase emissions generated by traveling. But it allows me to, you know, feel like I'm making an exchange that's quite worthwhile. And travel is so important for so many things, but especially, I mean, if you want to talk about wildlife conservation, it's, it's absolutely imperative. There is no wildlife conservation without wildlife tourism. So I think completely eliminating travel on the grounds of emissions or making it something that's bad, quote unquote, on the grounds of emissions is really detrimental to endangered species and especially to African wildlife, which depends entirely on safari tourism. That's an interesting point. Could you go more into how exactly tourism is so intrinsically linked with uh, wildlife conservation in Africa? Yeah, I mean, if you look at, you know, the United States or Europe, any area that has few wild spaces left, that's mostly because of industry and agriculture, which are things that generate revenue and stimulate the economy. So if you want to block off a huge portion of an African country and make it exclusively available for wildlife... Um, If that's not economically viable for the country and for its inhabitants, that's just not a realistic vision. Mm. You know, I mean, it costs a fortune to to run a reserve and a national park. And now when you take into factor security and anti-poaching teams, I mean, it's a very expensive management plan. Um, Again, without tourism dollars, there's, there's not really any reason to preserve those spaces and to preserve wild animals, you know, Um, especially in many, many African cultures, eating bushmeat is not taboo in any way. It's, you know, the same way a lot of people eat beef or chicken. Um, So yeah, if you look at COVID and the 
the effects that the the coronavirus travel bans and lockdowns have had on African tourism and African wildlife, it's been absolutely devastating. Poaching has gone up in countries that have, haven't even seen poaching in years, like Botswana, I think, had seven rhinos poached. They hadn't had any rhino poaching in almost a decade. So it's a, a very upsetting development. So, yeah. So you do encourage people to visit these reserves, but presumably there's a vegan way to go about things and a non-vegan way. Are there some practices uh, that you would discourage? Oh, yeah. Anything that promotes any kind of like interaction with wildlife, I would say is a giant red flag. The only scenario where that's okay is that um, if you're going to like work as a volunteer with a project Mm. where usually they require a, a, you know, a two week minimum or a one week minimum, but anywhere where you can go and pay a fee and interact with wild animals. That's a massive red flag. It's highly unethical. And usually there's a horrible sketchy story behind all of them. You know, like when you go, when you see people bottle feeding lion cubs and, and taking care of lion cubs, those are all lions that are destined for canned hunting which is a, an industry in South Africa where lions are raised like, like livestock. Mm. Um, then they make money off of tourists coming, taking selfies, et cetera, et cetera. Then when the lions hit a certain age, they sell them off to trophy hunters and the lions are already habituated to human beings. So they're not scared and they bait them in an enclosure and the trophy hunter quote unquote hunts the lion. And I suppose the tourist uh, never hears about this uh, destiny of the lion when they're petting it. I mean, most of them don't. There's definitely a lot of um, advocacy out there sort of trying to get the message out of why it's bad to take selfies with wild animals and sort of the stories behind when you're interacting with wild animals. I know Mm. Born Free Foundation um, did a great animated video that's absolutely heartbreaking about a lion cub that you know is taken care of and bottle fed and adorable and then is you know sold off to a trophy hunter and his head is mounted on a wall so i'll um, I'll add the link to that in the description for the yeah and then there's blood lions is also a great um documentary Uh, about the canned hunting trade and you know the more you look into it the more you'll you'll see it but it's not just canned hunting it's it's elephant rides it's um it's pretty much any industry where there's not a specific reason for you to be interacting with a wild animal but you can pay to do so like I, i think a lot of people might disagree with me on this one but i would say giraffe manor to me is a that's a no-no um it's essentially just encouraging people to come and pet giraffes and feed giraffes human food and there's not there's not an actual conservation reason to be touching the giraffes and is there any kind of quality label where you can say okay this one is uh, good for the animals or do you just have to look for the warning signs and weed out the bad ones you really do have to just do your research on Mm. where you're going um And I think that that's more and more true for travel in general, if you want to know if you're going somewhere that negatively impacts the environment or not. But for African travel and for African safaris, like, yeah, do your research. Always do your research because you don't really know unless you look it up. Right. You've declared on Twitter that your most happy place is Moremi, Botswana. What's your connection to this place? Um, I would say my most happy place is anywhere in Southern Africa where I'm just in the presence of animals. But I I do love Botswana deeply. I've been there many times and photographed there a lot. Um, One of the things I loved most about Botswana was they had a total ban on trophy hunting, which was recently reversed Mm. in a very disappointing decision. But that being said, Botswana is incredibly wild. Um, Their economic model is based on luxury tourism. Um, 
they do also have money from diamond mines. So it's a, mm. a country that's quite wealthy. Um, I think the average salary for a Botswanan is higher than any other average salary in Africa. So it's, it's quite stable. It's very safe. Incredible wildlife sightings. Just absolutely amazing wildlife. Um, which we've seen in your photography. You first picked up a camera when you were 10 years old. Yeah. Were you already taking wildlife pictures of, of some kind? No, <laughs> at that time? not at all. I was obsessed with shooting people for forever. I, you know, I, that was how I got into fashion and, and, um, and beauty and advertising was I shot lots of portraits and I had like a brief, street documentary moment um I did fine art for a little while when I first moved to France and then eventually I got into shooting fashion and beauty and advertising um and I I love photographing people and I love the exchange that you have when photographing people and it wasn't actually until I took my first safari um and and was taking vacation photos that I realized there was an entire other world out there that was available to me. And actually that first safari was my sort of my initiator for transitioning to a vegan lifestyle. Right. That kind of laid the emotional groundwork, was it? Or well, I, did you also meet people who were vegan? Or No, I went on, so I, my husband and I went to South Africa. This is maybe six years ago and I went on my very first game drive and I saw this um that's the word for a safari is a game drive okay and I saw this very beautiful antelope called a kudu and it's the symbol of South Africa's national park system and it's also called the gray ghost of Africa just a really gorgeous male antelope with spiraling horns that go into the sky like very lion king-esque <laughs> and um i took pictures of this antelope and the guide told us all about the antelope and all about the kudu and, and then we went back to the lodge and they were serving kudu on the menu mm. and mm. i think that was like the the real moment that it suddenly hit me that i was eating animals Right. And like I had flown all the way to Africa to see this beautiful animal and it was on the menu. Yeah, that's a stark contrast. Yeah. It's a kind of contrast that uh, vegan activists are often trying to show people by, you know, juxtaposing an image of a dog and a calf. Yeah, I mean, the whole like sorting system we have for animals that are edible and not edible is complete nonsense. I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Melanie Joy's work um, and her book about carnism and sort of why we eat pigs, love dogs and wear cows, I think is the the name of her book. It's a fantastic book. The psychology of it is fascinating. Yeah, like I'm a big fan of her work and I think she, she makes such interesting points. It's the same thing when you see people freaking out about the Yulin Dog Festival, but they eat meat, you know. Right. I don't understand that. That's just a cultural difference. I mean, French people eat horse, which yeah. which is extremely taboo in the United States. But like you don't see, you know, you don't see angry Hindus showing up in the United States trying to liberate cows because they don't eat beef. <laughs> You know, that's no, just, that's like a Westerner thing to try and say, oh, like for us, dogs are pets, so you can't eat dogs. No, indeed. And a few years back, there was a lasagna scandal where horses ended up in lasagna in the UK. Uh, and in the UK, it's completely taboo as well to eat horse. Yeah, I think it's, it's, re- it's hard for people to make that connection and it can be... It can be really like painful and upsetting. It can also be incredibly inconvenient, um, mm. you know, and requires a lot of lifestyle changes when you really come to grips with the fact that you have this like disconnect, this like internal conflict that's happening. Right. I mean, there are people out there who don't care. There are people out there who hunt animals and skin them and eat them and while personally as a vegan I ethically don't agree with that I have more respect for that than I do for a person who only wants everything wrapped in packages in plastic 
very like sterile. They don't want to know where their food comes from. They don't want to watch videos of slaughterhouse footage. They say they could never kill a cow. Like that's extremely hypocritical. Mm. It's also part of of being incredibly privileged because right. statistically speaking, slaughterhouse workers are people with low hiring capacity. So, you know, people who weren't able to graduate high school or only have a GED, couldn't go to college. Lots of them are undocumented um, immigrants or, you know, people who don't speak English or people who otherwise they, they really don't have a choice. There are very few people who actively choose to work in a slaughterhouse. And statistically, people who do actively choose to work in a slaughterhouse tend to be people who have a history of violent crimes. And actually, the FBI did a fascinating study where they analyzed violent crimes in areas where slaughterhouses were um, constructed. And in, in the areas that they did the study, violent crimes and sexual violent crimes increased by almost 20% wow. when a slaughterhouse came to town. Wow. So yeah. So when you look at like who you're asking to kill animals, it's either people who are, you know, you'd have to already be in a bad place to work there. And if you weren't already, you, you would be afterwards. Yeah. Very few people choose to work in a slaughterhouse. It's extremely rare. No, you've been a vegan, was it four years now? Yeah, I've been vegan for four years, and I've been um, meat and dairy-free for almost five. I kept eggs and fish a little while longer, like during my, during my transition. And how did you perceive vegans before you went vegan yourself? <laughs> Super fucking annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's pretty common. Yeah. I mean, I just thought vegans were really annoying. In, in every way. I thought they were annoying and preachy and stupid. And I loved ribs and fried chicken and steak and whole milk in my coffee, which now makes me want to gag when I say that. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, I thought vegans were the worst. But really, I think what was happening was my conscience was saying, get away mm, <laughs> like mm. i don't i don't want to look at like the things that you're saying because i i don't want to have to accept that and deal with that kind of change i mean it's a it's a whole thing you know in in my case i was really lucky that all of my friends and my family have been really supportive and really open and most of them have even adopted dietary changes my my mother is almost vegan my husband is essentially vegan um yeah great. my stepdad became almost vegan my father stopped eating meat um my sister and my niece already have been vegetarian for years did you have to work on them was it simply they followed your example or um i tend to follow a strategy of just not really making it a big deal. And then when people ask me questions, I like unload the, the upsetting facts. Right. Yeah. I was like, the only person that I like actively really push, I would say is my dad because I felt, I felt like he was really influenceable because he's my father, <laughs> because he's my father. So I would like, I see, I would like send him these like random videos about, you know, I sent him one video of a cow chasing after her calf being taken away and, and bellowing and stuff. And it made him cry. And so he stopped eating. Dude, you, you knew that he wouldn't think you were annoying. Well, he's my dad. I mean, I feel like your parents don't get to decide that you're annoying, even if you're being annoying. Well, I, know. <laughs> I know I've heard of vegans for whom veganism has caused some tension in their families. Uh, they're faced with a brick wall in, in that conversation. Yeah, I'm really grateful that that's not my case. I mean, but my family is, everyone in my family is extremely liberal you know, I don't even know anybody who voted for Donald Trump. <laughs> That's a bit of a problem in many areas that we are in our bubbles. I'm in a somewhat of a vegan bubble that I have created for myself. How did you experience the online vegan community? I know you said you don't like these sort of aggressive types. 
the people that I'm exchanging with on a regular basis are usually like other photographers and other conservationists. Like that was the community that I already had before I became vegan. So it's, I don't know if I feel as connected to the online vegan community as I do to say like the African wildlife community. Mm. So I, I'm very interested in the vegan community and I would like to be more of a part of the vegan community. Um, but I'm really more of an observer, I guess, of the online vegan community than a, an active participator. Mm. Um, sometimes I see people online getting angry and calling people like apologist vegans or calling people aggressive vegans. And I, I think that's kind of nonsense for vegans to be fighting against each other. Um, like in my case, I'm not, I'm not openly aggressive with people about my veganism or about what they're eating. And that definitely does not make me an apologist because I'm not fucking sorry. White veganism for me, that's like, that's an invention of white people. <laughs> like, I, I, you know, veganism definitely doesn't belong to anyone. That's no, for sure. No. Um, and then I, I also think that white people have a tendency to surround themselves with other white people. So I think it's easier if you're a white vegan to believe that only other white people are vegan. Right. Um, personally, I follow tons of amazing vegan influencers that are many many different races and ethnicities um i mean yeah tabitha brown world's most famous vegan of the moment is black That's right yeah uh rachel llama who i love is black yep. um vegan richa who's incredible she's indian Woon hang yep. also a person who does not help me uh from I'm <laughs> gaining weight, Woon Hang, with all her <laughs> yes, noodle dishes. Yeah. Her post uh, delicious looking. Um, yeah, she's, I believe she's Chinese American. I also follow um, Pickup Limes. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that that's a very white idea that, you know, white people own veganism. I also think it's really sad and super racist to insinuate that people of other ethnicities are not in a position to eat in line with their ethics. Mm. We've started talking about veganism in general now, but uh, we've got a listener question that I'd like to go back to. It's on, back on the topic of photography. Um, it's from someone in Germany called Jonathan as well. He was asking about film because there are animal-derived com uh, components in uh, film photography. Now, do you still shoot on film, and what's your perspective on that? <laughs> so I, I don't know if you know, but um, a lot of my followers know that for almost 10 years, I ran the website istillshootfilm.org. Wow. <laughs> Uh, so <laughs> this is kind of a, a major question. And I stopped running the website, um, actually having nothing to do with being vegan. I stopped running the website because it was exhausting and I wasn't really getting much out of it. And I haven't shot film professionally for a long time. That's just not a possibility for me, um, for the clients that I have and the way that I work. I see, yeah. Um, but I, I've stopped purchasing film as a vegan because it does have gelatin in it. Mm. Uh, but this is like one of those things where, you know, I still have film in my fridge. I don't really want to throw it away. And it's like animals are, are not being killed to create film film is just using byproducts of the rendering industry right it's still still 100 not vegan um that being said i think film is deeply romanticized right um i i know that i was a part of that camp for a long time otherwise i wouldn't yeah. run a website trying <laughs> to keep it alive um and I think there's like a certain point where, you know, digital surpassed film a little while ago, unless you're shooting large format, which very few people are. And unless you're using, you know, drum scanners, which cost thousands and thousands of dollars, which very few people are. 
So I think there's this kind of, it's somewhere between nostalgic and pretentious, I would say. Mm. Um, this like attachment to film that I really don't have anymore. And I know it was very disappointing for a lot of people when I, when I closed mm. that door. Um, and yeah, I mean, for me at the end of the day, even if I wanted to continue student shooting film, I wouldn't because it's not vegan. Um, so, but there's no uh, professional imperative to shoot film for most uh, areas of photography. No, I would say the only area that I could genuinely think of is like landscape survey photography. Right. Um, where I know there are still photographers using large format, um, like field cameras. I don't know if you know what that is, like a large eight by 10 camera with a huge bellows that comes out. Oh, they still looks use very that? old fashioned. <laughs> yeah. People do still use those for landscape survey. Right. So, do you think film will completely die or will it always linger in some uh, small way? Do you think? I really don't know. Uh, I really don't know, and I don't know if I really want it to linger. I think that one of the biggest problems with all this huge resurgence of hobby film photographers, which I am 100% partially responsible for creating, is um, there's now just a ton of people out there incorrectly dumping darkroom chemicals down the drain and into our waterways. Mm. So... I'm not talking to the five photographers out there listening to this right now who are like responsibly separating <laughs> their silver and are responsibly disposing of their stop bath and their developer. Like I am not talking to you. I'm talking to everybody else who bought, you know, some canisters and is developing their film at home and hanging it up to drip dry in the bathtub mm. and pouring all of your chemicals down the sink and, you know, probably directly into your local waterways. I think that's a very big problem, um, you know, which doesn't nullify the fact that digital cameras also use lithium batteries and right. create waste. And, you know, I think the difference is that there's potential for the components of digital cameras to be recycled and reused, which is something I would like to see happening more. Yeah. Whereas with film, that's just not a possibility. Again, I'm going to take this conversation elsewhere because uh, recently Sir David Attenborough has come out with a new film, A Life on Our Planet. And I imagine as a conservationist, you're well aware of that. Yeah, yeah, I saw you it. You saw it? Uh, what, are, yeah. what are your impressions as a conservationist, but also as a vegan? Um, well, it made me happy to hear him say plant-based diet i think there's a point in the movie where all the vegans out there were like he's going there he's going <laughs> yeah. there is he gonna say it is he gonna say it and then he did so i you know i was happy about that um it's difficult for someone in a mainstream media position to just blatantly say um everyone should just stop eating animals you know and, right. and i mean he's 90 you know, even just acknowledging that a plant-based diet is helpful for the environment for a 90-year-old person is massive. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, that's, I, I think that right there is great. Of course, I would prefer if he was vegan and told everyone to go vegan. I mean, who wouldn't prefer that? Yeah. But, but I, I think that it's fantastic that he at least mentioned it and i think it's you know becoming more and more mainstream it's more and more difficult to deny moving forward that the role of animal agriculture and climate change is just massive yeah i think a lot of vegans were getting or sort of given up on the thought that he might um broach this topic because he's been a conservationist for so long and he wasn't even a vegetarian i guess he still isn't now but uh he's made as such an influential person he's made these statements and that's a great help i think to start a conversation about it or spread the conversation yeah i mean i i'm sure there's a huge disconnect there for somebody who loves animals as much as he does but still continues to eat them i would say that for anyone in that position, um, especially anyone who has a choice about what they, what they eat. 
because some people don't have a choice of course, um, yeah. in, in what they can eat. But for people who do have a choice, yeah, that's a huge, it's a huge disconnect to have, you know, but um, like I said, he's 90. Mm. So I wonder, can you take a conservationist or environmentalist of a younger age seriously if they're not vegan? No. And would you call them out on that? If Yeah. I mean, if it's a person, if we're talking about someone who is an active environmentalist, someone who's speaking out for the environment, and someone who is in a position to be able to make those kinds of changes, but they're not making them, I would, yeah, I would probably say that that person is a hypocrite. But is there some sort of cutoff age then? I mean, David Attenborough, we give him a free pass. Does it like? Well, he also gets a free pass because he has done so much for awareness and, you know, just like some like random, I don't know if some random nine-year-old gets as much (laughs) of a free pass as David Attenborough does. Right. Um, But I also don't know if it's, I feel it seems like wasted energy to me to be focusing on the elderly and their eating habits. I think, it's it's never too late i I think my point is just like i don't know if it's worth it to get all upset because david attenborough isn't vegan right um i would much rather you know kamala harris be vegan right (laughs) Uh, his message in the film is that we should rewild the world Um, yeah oh i'm sensing some disagreement there or, or what no disagree i don't disagree at all i think you know preserving wilderness is is essential to the survival of not only human beings but all other species i just don't think that there's anything helpful about saying we need to preserve the wilderness i think everybody knows that Mm. you know and there's a, a systemic problem Essentially, like the current political system that we have, especially in the United States and also in Europe, uses legislation as a form of currency. Like it costs a fortune to get elected to office. Mm. I think the minimum the minimum to run a campaign um, to be elected to office in the United States is something like seven million dollars, you know, which is massive. So when it costs that much money to get elected, it's not that surprising that corporations and special interest groups are the ones that are funding those campaigns. And they're the people who are really essentially funding legislative changes. So as long as, you know, you have corporations that are funding legislative changes, I don't think it's realistic to believe that any of them are going to be nice enough to say, Oh, let's not, you know, cut down all of this rainforest for cattle ranching or, palm oil or let's not you know frack or build a pipeline because that's not lucrative so i you know i think i think ignoring where the problem is coming from and i think ignoring the system is is detrimental i think it's one of the biggest problems we have right now food photography has a great activistic potential in terms of getting people interested in vegan food. I've seen people get excited about veganism and change their perceptions about it uh, after seeing some nice food photography. Do you think that wildlife photography has a similar potential in the context of veganism to change people's minds about how they view animals? I hope so. Is that what you try to do with your... I I want it to... um... I hope that people see that there's a connection between what they buy and what they eat in, you know, New York or Iowa or California or London and animals in Africa. I hope that they see that, that, that there's that connection there because there is. Um, I mean, I think most wildlife photographers are trying to share the immediate the immediate need for conservation and how much something needs to change right now. Right. And that, that makes me wonder, actually, do you ever photograph animals that are suffering? Uh, and would you intervene, even though that's not really 
uh, allowed in the documentary code of ethics? Um, I probably would photograph for the moment that opportunity has not been presented to me. I'm not really sure if I want it to be or not. Um, if it was sort of a natural world scenario and we're not talking about, you know, an, an, a species that's so endangered, like, you know, an okapi or an, an animal where really there's only, you know, less than a thousand left, a mountain gorilla, something like that. I, I would probably not intervene. Um, and what about, uh, for example, there's this quite a famous image, I think, of a, an orangutan. Well, it's probably not the only image, sadly, but of an orangutan in a, a decimated uh, forest. Yeah. Uh, stuff like that. Would you, do you, how do you feel about that? Is it sensational? So, or? No, I, I think the photograph you're talking about is by Paul Hilton, who's one of my most favorite photojournalists. Um, and... He's also vegan, but he doesn't necessarily advertise it the I way see. that I do. And I don't I don't know if I could if I could handle it. I really don't. I I might I don't know if from being vegan and having a certain amount of empathy, I I don't know if I want to spend my energy only bringing to light the negative. I don't think I don't think the negative should be ignored. Um, hopefully for myself, I can find a balance between, you know, showing the the beauty and what we need to preserve and then also showing um, some of the more upsetting images. I mean, I think they need to be seen, you know, mm. but I would not photograph like suffering farm animals. I can't because I, I just can't. Do you watch? I can't deal with it. No. You don't watch those kinds of documentaries either about... You close no, your not eyes. Not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. I did um, when I was giving up. Uh, not giving up. When I was cutting out dairy, I watched a lot of really hardcore and upsetting dairy videos. Um, like I, I did it to myself purposefully, and now I'm in a place where it's just. I don't need to see it. I don't want to see it. I'm already vegan. It's too much. It makes me too upset. I, I can't. I just can't. You said uh, before we started the interview, you commented that you were moving away from uh, fashion and lifestyle photography. Uh, is that right? Is that something you want to talk about on the show? Sure. Um, yeah, I am. About a year and a half, almost two years ago, um, I sort of did some I discussed with both of my agents and I decided to do an active rebranding uh, where I'm only taking clients that are sustainable um, and that are in line with my values right so we'll see how that goes I'm also shooting wildlife and I just it got harder and harder for me to continue shooting fashion as a vegan and as an environmentalist uh, I'm, I'm still really interested in the beauty industry, which I think is an area that's really interesting in terms of producing, um, sustainable and ethical products in really innovative, uh, environmentally friendly packaging. So that's an industry like, you know, like skincare and cosmetics that I think that there's room to do work with brands that are in line with my values. But um, I don't know. It's kind of touch and go. Sort of see see where it takes me. But it's really hard to have you know a bunch of of ethical principles that you live by, and then turn around and shoot fast fashion or mm. shoot leather or you know. And there's a lot of things about the fashion industry that I I love deeply, and that have really inspired me and shaped me as a person and nurtured my creativity. And then there's other parts of the fashion industry that have made me deeply ashamed to be a part of it. So, um, 
I, I think I'm at the point where maybe the negative outweighs the positive. And so it's time for me to, to move on and explore, you know, the next possibilities. I actually do have a really big project that I've been working on for uh, almost two years and hopefully I'll be able to share it soon. Oh, it's still a secret, is it? Yeah. Okay. It well, does, can you say whether it relates to your wildlife photography or your veganism in some way? Or It absolutely 100% oh, relates wow. to veganism. That's very exciting. Well, yeah. So I, I hope to be able to share that soon. Yeah, and uh, we've reached the end of our time for the interview, but it's been really fascinating uh, speaking to you and learning about everything that you do. Um, our listeners can find Rachel at rachelrabibo.com and all her social media links are there. You've currently got two Instagram accounts, um, one for your professional uh, fashion lifestyle kind of work and one for your wildlife photography, which I believe by the time this episode goes out will be at Rachel Rabibo. Yeah, that's correct. Changing names. Um, my wildlife account is where I, I post, you know, stuff about climate change, and um, it's, it's definitely more more vegan-friendly, um, and I, I haven't really been updating my other account for the moment. So, Did I hear the birthday girl in the background, your dog... Oh, maybe you did. <laughs> did she just have some jingle jangles of her collar? Yeah, I just saw your Instagram story that it's her birthday today. Yeah, she turned four today. Wow. She's she's a sweetheart, and I always try and be the the human being that she thinks that I am. <laughs> well, I wish you both uh, a lovely afternoon then, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Vegan wines with John and Val. John and Val. <laughs> so we're back. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. Um, Bethany in Wales, if you haven't been helped by our advice. Um, <laughs> and I kind of thought about this for like this. What did we do? <laughs> well, what have we done? What have we done, Bethany? Um, if that didn't help you, fear not. There's at least three more chances for mm. your mind to be put at ease because we got some comments um, from our followers. Uh, on Facebook, Melanie says, in my experience, people don't really brag about eating eyeballs and tongues, <laughs> except maybe teenagers. Well, <laughs> Melanie, you'd be surprised uh, what humankind is capable and of. And maybe Bethany is a teenager. Yeah, maybe know. she is a teenager, yeah. Melanie. Um, you know, uh, If that's the kind of people you're in a group setting with, Maybe <laughs> maybe you shouldn't be hanging out with these people. Uh, no. That's a harsher version of what I said. <laughs> it, it is, but, you know, and as you said, she might be a teenager, in mm. which case, you know, she's not going to necessarily want to hang out with older, more mature people. It's, no. it's, it's important for most people to hang out with people their own age, even if they are annoying. Oh, God. Um. And she does say, but no, Melanie does say in brackets, if it's a matter of choice, of course, of course. Now, she goes on to say, most people are a lot more compliant in real life versus online. Oh, that's true. That's a very good point. People have absurd discussions online. Oh, yeah. So fucking rude. Don't get me started. Oh, God. <laughs> of course, there's people who make stupid comments, but there will be people like that about any kind of topic. Yeah, that's true. If the conversation escalates to uncomfortable grounds, simply state that you simply state that all you want to do is finish your meal in peace and leave the discussion for another time. Yeah. I, yeah, that's I agree. Mm -hmm, very wise. I would also just not really react to any typical bullshit anecdotes. Usually people telling these are just looking for attention and you reacting possibly emotionally is giving them what they're looking for. Mm. Invest your time in people who seem open-minded about the topic and inform where you can. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I agree with that. And Dr. Nitu Bajikal is back again, our previous guest on the show. She chimed in on Instagram. Uh, I suggest building a network online, if needed, of fellow vegans. Mm. Assess... It does help to have... It does, right? Yeah. yeah. That's true. 
Assess your friendships and spend more quality time with those who don't wind you up, who accept you with no judgment. Yeah, that's true. In other, in other social situations, if you don't want to engage in those conversations, excuse yourself and get some food or go to the restroom. If you don't yeah, I do that sometimes. <laughs> yeah, well, then that's, that's what it's for, resting, right? Resting yeah. from... Uh, from the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, I'm going to go rest a bit. <laughs> just got to do some resting all of a sudden. Damn, I need enough. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I would love to discuss this with you. I just sorry. need a rest right now. <laughs> yeah, that can buy you some time. But if yeah. they're still banging on when you get back, then... <laughs> yeah, sure. But yeah, it might give them a subtle hint that you're not interested in, in the discussion, at yeah. least. But then the discussion is already alive, you know, like you're not part of it anymore. Or maybe you never were, like only your presence started the discussion. But um... But I think sometimes these discussions are performative just to sort of express in front of the vegan because they know know the vegan won't respect their opinion. So they just want to put it out there, Mm. put it literally on the table. Mm. Can happen. Uh, And she says, very wise words, if you don't engage with adversarial comments, people get bored. That's true. That's what my parents said to me about bullying in yeah, school. Yeah, yeah, Just yeah. ignore like, them. Sounds like a motherly advice against bullies. <laughs> yeah. And, and she has a bonus yeah. tip. Maybe take a delicious savory or sweet dish. People can't talk if their mouths are full. <laughs> Toothy smile emoji. <laughs> Cute. It's very true. Uh, yeah. yeah. And <laughs> Jessica from Antwerp is back again. She proposes a strategy that is almost devious. She says, Goodness. I don't try and convince people. It's tiring and ineffective. Uh-huh. Sure. Instead, when asked about veganism, I always ask a question back, such as, do you honestly really want to know? Or are you <laughs> looking for things to break down or argue with? Uh-huh, because yeah. if it's the latter, it heads on. <laughs> because if it's the latter, I don't fancy that type of conversation. Okay, that's this good. question. She says, "Will set the tone. <laughs> it sure will, Jessica. <laughs> it yeah. sure will. Jessica's not messing around. That's for sure. <laughs> of course, they're not going to say yes. I'd just like to argue, <laughs> please. That's true. But yeah, it... I was just picking a fight just because I'm bored. <laughs> But yeah. if if this was their original intent, just by making them say that, just by making them say they won't do that, mm-hmm. the likelihood of them doing that will mm-hmm. go down. Wow, with, that's uh, that's not devious. That's really smart advice, I think. I don't know. It's a bit Machiavellian. Is it to have a strategy going know. in? I mean, that's basically what this I mean. Is about, strategy. I mean, it's just a strategy for life, right? Like. It, it against is, annoying conversations. It is quite brilliant in yeah. that it's very direct, but it's also. Being aware of something and then making sure you don't get trapped in it. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's smart. Yeah, sure. That's clever. That's clever. Uh, she goes on. Oh, there's she, more. No, no, just a little bit more. <laughs> just, just, just a little bit more. Um, you should have successfully avoided being unpleasantly questioned. This is number one in psychology. Boundary setting. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and you are like her advice. So, it sounds good. Uh, you need to do it in every relationship and in much more context than veganism alone, yes. she says. Uh, and one last thought from Jessica. Secondly, I read stuff about eyeballs and tongues. <laughs> I go back to boundary setting. I do not want to tolerate or associate with that type of people. So, if that would happen to me in a group once, okay. But the second time around, I won't be there. Oh. <laughs> She's not fucking around. I like her. <laughs> She's cool. Uh, no, it's it's totally right. If um, you can, if you could avoid it, the problem is you don't always know what you're getting into. No, that's true. That's true. And people can seem very nice, but they have terrible opinions sometimes. That's true, and, and it all depends like on your situation. Like maybe you're trying to make new friends in a new city, and it's like hard yeah. to like you don't have like a real reliable group of friends who like have supportive attitudes or whatever. So yeah, absolutely. And to conclude, she says, it's one thing to eat meat. It's entirely different to go on and be obnoxious and hurtful. People saying, People saying things like that are not looking for a conversation. They're not. Well, thanks to everyone who offered their advice. Uh, hopefully that gives you some confidence, <laughs> I think Bethany. they give better advice than us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Jessica, she should uh, do this professionally, I think. Yeah, she should. Um, 
please send us more questions we love getting questions yeah. uh, dilemmas not necessarily dilemmas it can also be like just things you wonder about um well not something you could just google no not something you can google just to have just a philosophical like, bent to it yeah indeed and um yeah we'll be happy to help if we can if you have a dilemma for us to discuss submit it anonymously using the contact form on teacherstable.com forward slash contact that's all for today if you've enjoyed listening do subscribe and share the podcast with your friends you have friends don't you we'll be back precisely when we mean to be with our next guest emma hawkinson ciao for now Leather isn't a byproduct because as soon as something becomes profitable, it becomes a co-product. Plastic is a co-product of the fossil fuel industry, for example. Leather products, they're not made as some kind of waste reduction initiative by the meat and dairy industries. It's sold because it makes a lot of money.